0: Uh, Some of you are wondering why I'm preaching today because you knew that we had a special speaker for today. (laughs) Right? Some of you knew that. And you came to hear him and you sadly were disappointed because you had to hear me again. Uh, We had a special speaker coming and he was going to do a workshop yesterday, a few things, and it was a bad weekend. You all know it was a bad weekend. I knew when he asked to come on that weekend that it was a bad weekend. And we we just had very little... um, um, enrollment, if you want to say, for the workshop yesterday. So we decided in the middle of the week uh, that we best just postpone it for a, for a later date. So John Wenricks from the Covenant and a friend, and, and uh, he thought that was best, and I did too. Which means that the sermon you're going to hear this morning was the one, I was feeling so great, so prepared. I decided I'd prepare for the July 6th sermon because I had that extra time, and I'd, you know, be able to go away on holidays next week and just be feeling comfortable. Here you go, my July 6th sermon. I'm glad I was ahead, but you know, now I'm not. Anyway, (laughs) here you go. Let's let's pray as we begin today. Lord, uh, today we want to talk about uh, some stuff that um, in some ways is, uh, well, I believe it's near and dear to your heart, because people are near and dear to your heart. But it's also something that elevates our sense of risk and our sense maybe of fear. Um, And can elevate our sense of guilt, though we don't want that. Um, I just pray this morning, Holy Spirit, you would speak through me, that each one of us, myself included, be open to hearing uh, what you have to say to us as your church. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want you to imagine this with me. The people of an isolated mountain village are dying. They're dying from something. They don't know what it is, but you have the medicine that can cure them. But you're miles away and you're running out of time. What would you do? Just think about it. You don't need to respond. What would you do in order to get that medicine to them? And what what rivers would you cross? What mountains would you climb? What what obstacles would you overcome in order to get the medicine to these people so that they could live? Let me expand the story a little bit. What if you yourself had been afflicted by that disease? that you knew the horrors that that disease did to you, and that you had stumbled across the remedy really by chance, but after taking the medicine, you realized this is what you needed. As you felt life surge back into your body, you realized this is what everybody needs. How motivated would you be to get the medicine to those people? Now, one more one more step. Just imagine with me. Imagine with me that there actually aren't any rivers to cross. That there, there are no mountains to climb. There's actually no significant barriers between you and the people who need the medicine. That it really would just involve a short walk and a, a simple knock. What would you do? Could you imagine just holding back the cure? Could you imagine hoarding the news all to yourself? You and I both know what we would do. We'd share the medicine. We'd get it to the right people and we'd get it there quick. Or would we? I mean, let's think about this one. Because maybe we'd be too shy to speak up. Maybe we'd feel uncomfortable interrupting people as they travel back and forth for more ineffective treatments to the thing that's killing them. Maybe we wouldn't want to make a fuss or cause a stir or be labeled a bit of a loony. Maybe we would be worried about what people would think about us. Or that we might be rejected. Or, get this, that people might misunderstand my motives. As if, right? No, you wouldn't. You and I both know we'd just let none of that stand in our way. We'd run across the field. We'd knock on every door. We'd, we'd stop every person in the street to tell them the good news, right? And yet, is it possible that as Christians we end up being guilty of hoarding the very medicine that people need. Is it possible that we could be holding back the good news that can change people's lives? Well, to probe that question, we're going to review an obscure little story in the ancient history book of the Bible called Second Kings. It's more than halfway back in the Old Testament. Unless you're reading through the one-year Bible, which you're, you're going to hit the story this week if you're reading through the one-year Bible this year, uh, but unless you've you know, been trekking around in Second Kings lately, it might not be a story you've heard for a while. And, and for those of you who are newer to church, newer to the Bible, this is going to be one of those whacked-out stories people have told you about. Here it is. The story is found in Second Kings 6 and 7. Here's the setting. There's the, the kingdom of Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and the kingdom of Israel, which at that point had its capital in the city of Samaria. They've been at each other's throats for years. Back and forth the conflict waged, raging across each other's borders, generally just wreaking havoc for one another. The great prophet Elisha, who su- succeeded Elijah just to keep the names really confusing. The, the great prophet Elisha was around in those days, and he'd even been involved as a sort of spy for Israel. You never thought prophets did that sort of thing, I know, but he did. In fact, when, uh, when, when God would whisper the information in his ear, he'd feed sensitive military information to the king of Israel about what the king of Aram was, was going to do, and they'd be able to outwit him every time. And the king, the Aramean king, just hated Elisha for this, hunted him in the past. Uh, it ended up being a pretty funny story about how, how he found him, but you can, you can look that up uh, sometime. Uh, there was absolutely no love lost between these two kingdoms. Well, one day, Ben-Hadad was the name of the king of, of Aram at the time. He decided to finish Israel off for good, once and for all. So he marched up, got his all his best soldiers together, and he laid siege to Samaria his army was vast, and the siege worked its evil magic, reducing this city into a devastating famine. As time passed, the famine increased, and the value of food was driven up, as you can imagine. And not the nice food, right? The nice food, that had all been eaten or was being, let's be honest, hoarded by the king. But, you know, all, all the nice food was gone. It got eaten first. So by the end of the famine, they were eating, well, get this, uh, by the end of the famine, a donkey's head was worth 80 pieces of silver. Not looking pretty like that either, I'll guarantee it. It was after they ate the rest of the donkey, you know? They had 80 pieces of silver. A cup of seed pods, they probably weren't pea pods, which probably have some nutritional value, but you know, a cup of seed pods were worth about five pieces of silver. These were desperate, desperate times. But in the final stages of the siege, things got unspeakably ugly. This is one of these R-rated spots in the Bible that you, 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 you definitely want to gloss over it when you read this to your kids at bedtime. Uh, this is the one that children's Bibles tend to skip too. But anyway, uh, you're all mostly adults here and we can handle it. The king of Israel is walking along the wall of the city and he's accosted by two arguing women. And they want him to settle the argument. They're having a dinner time argument. Listen to this. I'm reading from Second Kings. A woman called to him, Please help me, my lord, the king. He answered, If the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. That was his immediate knee-jerk response. And then he decided to calm down. and He said, Okay, what's the matter? She replied, This woman said to me, Come on, let's eat your son today. And then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. Then the next day I said to her, Kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall, the people could see he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders. This very day the king vowed, Can you imagine a more horrific, more defiling story than that? Mothers eating their children. The king's frustration and anger is understandable. He is freaking out. I mean, he's walking down the street and people are arguing about this. And he's looking for someone to blame. And in a state of helplessness, he lashes out at Elisha. Elisha, he'd given him critical information in the past. I mean, why was he silent now? Couldn't he speak up? Couldn't he do something? Couldn't he let us know what we could do to possibly end this siege? That we could move forward? So he grabs one of his soldiers nearby and says, Go and kill Elisha. And then he follows along behind him. And Elisha sees him coming, slams the door shut, and then cries out to the king, kind of like you can imagine, sort of through the door. He says, Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, their markets where you've been eating this stuff, Five quarts of choice flour will only cost one piece of silver. And ten quarts of barley grain will only cost one piece of silver. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, This couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, You will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. So that's the awful stage that's been set. A city dying, a city without hope, a city that is literally eating itself. It's awful. And outside the gate lies this army of the best equipped soldiers of the day. Death, no matter which way you turn, an absolute no-win situation. They couldn't do anything to save themselves. Enter a new set of characters. Caught between this dying city and this vast army, there were four lepers, I'll continue reading. They were sitting at the entrance of the city gates to Samaria. Why should we sit here waiting to die, they asked each other. We'll starve if we stay here, but with the famine in the city, we'll starve if we go back. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much the better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyway. So at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. So they panicked and ran into the night, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys, Big screen TVs, SUVs, they were all along the side of the road as these guys ran, fled for their lives. It wasn't quite in the original translation. But anyway, um, when the lepers arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. This is amazing, unexpected, a radical reversal of fortune. Can you just hear them? Can you get the sense of how excited they would have been? Just the hooting and the hollering as they roared around, looking in the tents, finding out what they could find. Celebrating their unbelievable luck. I mean, how would you have felt if you were them? You're expecting death, right? You're expecting a quick trip with a sword. And this is what you discover. But you see what's happening here? Inside the city, nothing has changed. Right? Inside the city knows that God has acted on their behalf. They don't know it. Inside the city, people have given up hope with the insight of freedom. Inside the city, people are starting to eat each other. And here's these four dudes out there in an abandoned army camp, right in the middle of God's action, right in the center of what God has done, Gorging themselves on food and hawking all the gold and silver they can haul away. They cannot believe their luck. They're overwhelmed by the bounty. They've stumbled into, through through no genius or strength of their own, a whole new hope for life. You can see them, right? Having the time of their lives just outside the city. Amazed at what they find. Hey, come look at this. Come look at this. This is amazing. This is too big to haul away. Come help me. Find a shovel. Until one of them finally comes to his senses. I can just imagine it. he looks around at the stuff he's been burying in holes. He, he, he looks around at the riches and the food and he, all the goodness. And, 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 and then suddenly it's like his eyes catch. Maybe the moon suddenly rises over the city. I don't know. It's in the middle of the night. But suddenly he looks back and he sees the silhouette of this city that's Dying. It's probably very silent. And and I can just imagine that suddenly he just stops eating, stops drinking, drops the trinket on the ground, and and he's looking at this city, and then his three buddies stop too, and they, they start looking at this city. It's like they all stop chewing and shouting, and they look at each other, because together suddenly they've realized. In 2 Kings 7, 9, finally they said to each other, This is not right. This is a day of good news. And we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on. Let's go back and tell the people at the palace. And so the horrible siege ends. The four lepers stumble up to the gate. They call out. Finally, someone comes. No one believes the story. It's way too weird, too incredible. And who are these jokers anyway, right? Lepers. They're probably spies. They probably got fed a good meal and told, look, you can have another meal tomorrow if you go up to the gate and say that we've gone. You know? There's no one there. As if. The king thinks it's a nasty trick too, so he sends out some scouts on the last remaining horses in the city, which is a big sacrifice because everyone's been eyeing them up for their last barbecue, right? You're going to send those out there too? Just send them out on foot for crying out loud. Anyway, the the scouts go out, and of course they find things exactly as these lepers had reported it. The city gates are thrown wide open, and people stream out. And the guy back in the story who doubted Elisha's word, the, the one Elisha said, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Yeah, he got trampled to death in the rush. Elisha's words fulfilled to the letter. And that day in the markets of Samaria, well, lo and behold... Five quarts of choice flour cost only one piece of silver and ten quarts of barley grain only one piece of silver. Isn't that a weird story? That's in your Bible. You know that? It's in that Bible that we've been encouraging you to read. It's a weird story and why do I tell it today? Because I'm captured by the image of these four leopards. uh, uh, Lepers. I said that when I was practicing too. I thought, don't say Leopards. Now you have a really great image. Okay, lepers. Four lepers. I, I just imagine, sort of, you know, I mean, maybe there weren't crowns sitting around, but this, this image in my mind of these four lepers with golden crowns on their head and a goblin in each hand, where they're, they're just reveling in their good fortune, just astonished at what has happened. And they're doing all this in the shadow of a city that's descending into cannibalism and chaos. I'm captured by that image. I'm captured by the contrast between this good news celebration meal and the horrible last meals that are happening inside this besieged city. I'm captured by because I see you and I in this story. Because if you know Jesus, if you've experienced Jesus' work in your life, then you have received the good news. We have received the good news through no merit or goodness or genius of our own. We have received the good news that God has come and He has acted on our behalf. We are the ones who know the good news that Jesus has come, that He has come and destroyed the enemy who was seeking to destroy us. We know it. We celebrate it. We celebrated it today as we sang and as we prayed. We know it, we celebrate it, but do we share it? How often do we celebrate it only for ourselves? How often do we hoard the good news that everyone else needs to know, acting oblivious to those who are still caught in the old news of death? Because like those lepers, we we didn't receive this news for ourselves only. We received it so that we can share it. You know, we didn't receive it just because we were someone special and everyone else wasn't. We're really just a group of lepers. Look around. Who stumbled into the good news of Jesus, finding out that even though we weren't looking for it, God had showed up, had acted on our behalf, and that the enemy of our souls, or the enemy of our lives had fled in terror. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. We didn't achieve it through some good news contest. You're not nice enough for that. You're nice, but none of us are equal to that task. We're people who have received, through surprising grace, this good news that changes everything. And we we sing, we do that with our lives. If you're a Jesus follower, we, we sing praises to the God who has rescued us. We thank God for His saving action in Jesus. We worship Jesus for His grace and His love and His forgiveness. But inside the homes of Creston and Lister, people are still dying without any good news. Behind the fences of Canyon and Windle, whole families groan for lack of hope. Within the hearts of men and women from Hushcroft to West Creston, the old news story is still the only press being reported. Do you realize that? I can just imagine it. The question asked: Are there any news today? You can imagine the question being asked in the city that was besieged. Any news today? Nothing. Nothing new. Nothing good. Any news today, nothing but a ceaseless search for something that will satisfy, but nothing ever does. Any sign of change? Any, any, any glimmer of hope? Any news that would alter our situation? And what do we say to that? Well, uh, yeah, actually there is news. Really good news. Good news that changes everything. Everything. You may not be aware of it, but God has already come in and acted on our behalf. This is good news, and it's too good not to share. The good news is that God is on the scene, that Jesus defeated the enemy of death, the enemy of sin, the enemy of evil, that he's affected in our world and for our good. The very change we never imagined possible. The good news is that each and every person, man, woman, child, that you and I see every day is loved by God. And that He has acted on their behalf for them because He loves them to give them life and forgiveness and purpose through Jesus. We have got good news to share, but the question is are we hoarding it instead? I think we have to ask tough questions. I have to ask tough questions of myself. I'm in this category. With all, we're all in this together. For example, do I think that Jesus loves me and rescued me so I can just keep it to myself? Do I think that? Do you think that God sent Jesus to pay only for your sin? Or maybe just to rescue your family? Do we think that the good news that God has broken into his creation to become one of us in Jesus, to rescue us and redeem us and recreate us is something that we somehow deserved? Something that only we get to enjoy. None of us think that. We don't. We don't think that. We don't believe that. If you were to write that down on paper you'd say that's a lie. It's not true. It's false. But I feel like for myself, rather than being a good news breaker, I end up Somehow hoarding the news instead, preferring to keep to myself the only thing that will make an eternal difference in people's lives. To quote the lepers, what we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. This is a day of good news. Jesus is present, Jesus is changing lives even today. This is a day of good news. For each and every day that we wake up, it is a day of good news because of what God has done in Jesus. This is a day of good news. And each day that we don't orient ourselves toward a world that's dying, that needs to hear the good news. Wow. It also applies to us, the church community. It applies to us personally as we think about our friends and our neighbors and our family and our co workers. We've got to take that really seriously. But it also applies to us as a church body. How concerned are we as a church? as a community, about those who would never connect to Christian community, where the word church is scary. Maybe because they don't know much about it. Maybe because they had a bad experience with it. Well, I don't know all the different reasons, but the idea of coming to church is it's just way off the radar. Are we concerned about that? Are we guilty of hoarding the good news as a community, of living within a comfortable bubble, of even designing our church services or our, our, our family life as a church really around our own consumption rather than for the sake of an outsider? Do we gather without a thought for those who are driving by this morning, who are off doing life? Do we gather without a thought for them, for those who have never heard the good news, who, who aren't aware of this change that God has made? You know, I recently heard a church pastor uh, 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 challenge leaders, not just pastors, but leaders, See that, you know, somehow we as the church need to become more motivated by the thousands of people who don't show up. More motivated by the thousands of people who would never darken the door of a church. Then we are influenced by the hundreds of people who do, who want the church to stay the same so that they always feel comfortable and always feel safe at church. Whoa. That's challenging to me. Because I like things comfortable and safe too. But we have to ask ourselves. What has God given us this good news for? How does that change our vision of who we should be as a church community? Are we good news breakers or good news hoarders? Now, I realize that not everyone's going to believe our good news. I get that. In the times I've shared the good news with friends, with family, with people, there are definitely some who don't believe it. There are more who have. More who've been excited. But I realize there'll be those who are skeptical skeptical about the good news. Uh, some will you know, ignore it. Some will think you're nuts. I get that. Some already think you're nuts anyway, so you're not going to lose much. But, you know, I realize that. But you'll be surprised how many do hear it. You'll be surprised how many are intrigued by the fact that you are saying that there's a God who loves me. No one loves me. You're saying there's a God who created me. I thought I was just kind of here by chance. You're, you're telling me there's a God who wants to be involved in my life? You're telling me there's a God who values me? This is crazy, earth-shattering stuff. And as you point people to Jesus, the Jesus that you're following, as you invite them to come along and discover that this Jesus is alive and real, lives change. And people come back to you and they say, that day you shared with me, that day you pointed Jesus out to me, that day you invited me to come to Alpha, that day you invited me to come to church, that day you invited me to that Bible study, that day you finally just got over yourself and talked about Jesus at the coffee shop. Changed my life. And I hope and pray that you have people in your life who can come back to you and tell you that. Our responsibility is not to make people understand or hear it people have to decide but our responsibility is to share the good news with anyone who will hear it knowing what we've experienced and knowing that what we've experienced in jesus is for everyone without exception because you know what's out there just getting back to the metaphor of the lepers outside the gate you know you know what's out there beyond the gate you know the goodness you know you've heard the call of jesus and you begin to experience his healing and his forgiveness in your life you you know that god raised jesus from the dead And then he turned around and said, you can be raised from the dead too. This world is not all there is. There's hope for today. There's hope for tomorrow. And there's hope for eternity in Jesus in his resurrection life. Because of that, you and I, we don't need to be shy. We don't need to be hesitant. We don't need to quibble and stall, even in the face of those who are not yet ready to listen. You bear the best news. The only news. Able to change the destiny of your friends, your family, and your co-workers for eternity. Are you going to sit on that? Am I going to sit on that? So let me ask you. Who around you is drowning in their bad news? Can you name them? Not out loud. Can you name them? I want you to think for a moment the interactions you have on a daily level. People at work, family members, people you have coffee with, People you bump into seemingly all the time? Can you name them? People that aren't really aware. Maybe they've heard it. Maybe they've been jaded. I don't know their story. But people who don't yet know what it's like to receive the good news that God is active on their behalf. Who are they? In your mind, can you name them? Who are those people? And who of them needs you to take a risk to step out And to tell them the good news about Jesus. Actually every one of them do. Recognizing that there's wisdom and sensitivity in that, but for today's purposes, they need you to take that risk. And it leads me to ask the question of our broader community what kind of risks do we need to take as a church? What kind of ways that we need to think more critically and creatively as a community? so that we can be not hoarding the good news for ourselves, but, but sharing it with our community. Well, I ask this question, how do we risk for others? Because I think for some of us, we get stuck at various points in the way. So I want to share with you just briefly, how do we risk for others? How do we become good news breakers in people's lives? There's a lot more that can be said on this, but we're going to... So I use the acronym RISK to tease this out. Maybe something you can remember. Maybe you want to write it down even. Risk. How do we risk for others? Well, I think the first step is that we revel in the good news. I actually love the image of these lepers going from tent to tent, jamming food in their mouths, carrying... There's something awesome about that. Because you know what? Come on. Is there any other appropriate response for these guys? They thought they were dead. Right? I mean, this is like wild, exuberant joy at this abundance and this goodness and this amazing reversal of life. This is incredible. And I think we've got to start there. To take risks for others, we've got to be able to revel in the good news that God has acted on our behalf, that Jesus has come, that he's present, that what he's done is beyond our wildest imagination, that we become people of joy who revel in the good news. Some of us have kind of lost that little bit. There's not much reveling going on. It's become a little ho-hum, a little dry. And I, I think it starts there. I don't, I don't think we're willing to take that risk until we really understand how amazing it is. Maybe we have to remember what it was like to be inside the city. Maybe we need to remember what it was like to be without hope. So whatever we need to do, To begin to revel in the good news, whether it's asking God to restore to you the joy of your salvation, whether it's asking God as you read through the, the gospels to, to really understand what Jesus has done on your behalf. I don't know. Whether it's when you come to worship in a corporate setting that you say, Lord, fill me with this, the joy of, of knowing what you've done for me. But we need to revel in the good news. We need to be people who revel in it. But not only for ourselves. That's where we're heading. But we do revel in it. We're excited what God has done for us. That's where it starts. I don't think it can happen without that. The I stands for initiate through prayer. You know, when we think of taking risk for others, we often immediately jump to, how am I going to make that? How am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? And stall out? Not sure. This is where the risk starts. We risk in prayer by initiating there. Okay? So we begin to bring these names that you've identified to Jesus. And maybe we have to be honest, because maybe the names you've identified are people that, frankly, you don't care that much about. And you realize, oh, Jesus, I actually don't really have a burden for them. I don't really care for them. I need you, Jesus, to show me your heart for that person. I need you to initiate in me a desire to see them experience your goodness and your forgiveness. And so I invite you to start there by initiating through prayer. And you know what? This might last for a little while. I get that. Where you begin to pray and to pray and and, and to ask God to show you through His wisdom and insight how to pray for them. That you confess your sin of not caring or maybe your sin of, of valuing your own comfort higher than this person's salvation. Whatever it is. But you initiate there. You initiate through prayer. You name these people and you keep naming them and you keep praying for them. And you pray against the things that keep them from understanding. You know, they have an enemy who wants to keep them inside the city and dying. God has destroyed the works of the enemy, but if people don't know about it, then they can often still live under the idea that they're stuck. We pray against the works of the evil one who will keep people in bondage, who will keep people from ever hearing about the good news of Jesus. We pray against the kind of distractions that are in people's lives. We pray and we pray and we pray. This is where initiation starts. So we revel in the good news. We initiate through prayer. The S stands for start talking. That's the one you were all afraid, I was going to say at the start, I realize. This is where some of us get stuck, right? You don't want to talk. You're hoping. You've been hoping for several decades now that people would see how nice you were and would ask you about Jesus. But not many people do. Because if you haven't looked around lately, most Canadians are pretty nice. Right? Most Canadians are pretty nice. Right? But we we do. We operate under this assumption that if I can just somehow be greater than the next guy, if I can somehow just be really helpful, smile lots, people will ask me, hey, there's something different about you. And that might happen. But by and large, it doesn't. They just think, I work with this really nice guy named Brendan. I work this really nice guy, you know. And, uh, and, and, and they just are thankful that you're not a jerk. But they're not necessarily going to say fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? Although, when that happens, Brennan, please let us know. <laughs> on the rigs in Alberta. We need a revival there, right, Brennan? Yeah, yeah amen, yeah. Okay, uh, so, you know, people, they've been waiting, actually, for you to start talking. They don't know it. But that's what we got to do. So, you know, I know that there's hurdles. I get the hurdles. I experience those hurdles. I, I know that there's things that stop us. But you know what? You've got to start talking. You might not know what to say. Trust the Spirit to give you direction. You might find out as you start talking about Jesus, guess what? I've been claiming to follow Jesus for years, and I don't know that much about Him. Do you know that that happens? You know there's nothing that motivates you more to discover more about your Christian faith than having people throw a few questions back at you? This is beautiful stuff you've got to start talking. You've got to accept the fact that my witness has to also be verbal. I actually have to say something about Jesus. I actually have to initiate a conversation about Jesus, about what God is doing. And I think this start talking bit is linked directly back to reveling in the good news. That if we're reveling in the good news, if we're really exuberant and excited and finally getting what God has done for us, well then talking about Jesus, talking about this good news comes much more naturally, right? Right? Now, I'm not saying you've got to bring people through a huge, big, convoluted um, explanation. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying start talking. Start talking and see what the Holy Spirit does. Start talking and see what happens. In my experience, people are much more ready to talk about it than you realize. Some of them are. Some of them don't want to talk, and you respect that and keep praying. But a lot of people are willing to talk. A lot of people are willing to actually come to church. You might be surprised. A lot of people are willing to come to something. In the fall, we're going to launch Alpha Alpha. And if you're familiar with Alpha, it's an awesome program. People that might be interested in exploring the Christian faith. It's incredible. Tens and tens and thousands of people have come to know Jesus through this program. We're going to be doing that in September and through the fall. And I'm hoping that many of you are involved in bringing your friends to Alpha. But you just got to start talking. And I'm not going to explain everything you need to say. There's good resources around that. There's great stuff. But really, what's important is that you just start talking but you actually step out in faith, take the risk, open your mouth, start talking about Jesus. And that leads me to the the final K, which is to keep Jesus central. You know, we're not introducing people to a concept or an idea. You are certainly not introducing people to a religion. We do not need that. You're not not introducing people even to the Erickson Covenant Church. You're you're not introducing people to some some system of thought. You are talking about Jesus. Jesus and the difference that Jesus has made in your life. You are introducing people to a person who is real, who, yes, lived 2,000 years ago, but he rose again from the dead, and he's alive today. So we keep Jesus central. I recognize that as we're in these conversations, they can ebb and flow and go a lot of different directions. But somehow at the end of the day, we we need to remember that, you know, through all the stuff that we may discuss or may not discuss, what really matters is this person meets Jesus. That Jesus is the good news. That Jesus is the one who changes everything. They don't, have to, you know, they don't even have to like me. I don't really care in that sense. Uh, what matters is that somehow they've met Jesus. How do we risk for others? We revel in the good news. We initiate through prayer. We start talking and we keep Jesus central. There's people all around us who are dying in their old news. They go by us every day, they're in friendship with us. People who know us, people who barely know us. People who may be aware of their plight in that sense, and people who aren't aware. But as people who've received the good news of what God has done, we owe it to them. We owe it to them to share this good news. The good news that God has come, that in Jesus' He has acted on their behalf and that as a result, everything has changed. My prayer for you, not just this week, but this summer, is that you interact with people at beaches and barbecues and at work and on holidays, and just cruising around the valley. That you would embrace your calling to be a good news breaker in people's lives. And that we as the Erickson Covenant Church would embrace our calling as a community to be a good news-breaking community. Inviting, calling, telling, sharing, living out the good news that God is here, that He loves us. Everything changes because of that. Let's pray. God, um, this is a day of good news. Every day that you were alive for eternity to come is a day of good news. You've called us to be good news sharers and we acknowledge, we confess the ways that we duck that, the ways that we shy away from conversations, the ways that we don't want to really interrupt people, we somehow don't want to put ourselves out there. We acknowledge that and we confess that as sin. And we ask, Jesus, that you would lead us as your people to take risks on behalf of people that you love. I pray for each and every one of us here this morning that as we've identified names in our, in our minds of coworkers and friends and family and neighbors, that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit to take a risk for them. Because you took an immeasurably greater risk for us. Pray that we be people who don't pull back and hesitate, but as we revel in your good news, we share your good news with the world. Lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your courage and your power. In your name we pray. Amen.